Hi everyone. I know the world is scary out there and a lot of people are looking for reassurance. A lot of people want to be told that it's going to be okay, that everything will work out or at the very least we will find a way through all of the problems. Mm, yeah. Yeah, it's not fucking happening. Yeah, I, we don't want to lie to you. Yeah, it's not fucking happening, mate. We're not blowing smoke up your ass here, okay? You're fucked. You, listener, are toast. <laughs> You are active <laughs> toast. And 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 I just wanna right, I just I just wanna make something clear, right? Stephen. You're thinking to yourself, oh, this isn't about me, Steve, mate. You are toast. You've popped out uh, of the thing, you're quite warm, you're toast. You were bread, but now we're we're smearing butter on one of your surfaces, Stephen. <laughs> Oh, and don't think we've forgotten about you, Deborah. Uh-uh. Oh. Oh, oh. oh. Deborah oh. thought she oh. was off the hook. <laughs> Didn't know we were getting on to Deborah today, but well, fine, I can make space in the schedule. <laughs> didn't want to bring her up, but Deborah, right? At the at the risk of sounding offensive to you, Deborah, right? You're toast. I mean, it's not offensive to say that Deborah's toast. It's just a fact. Mm-hmm. Facts do not care about Debbie's feelings. Oh, no, they care about Debbie's feelings, just not Deborah's feelings. Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did I get Debbie and Deborah confused? See, that's the problem. Now, Debbie's a fucking cock. <laughs> By the way, we're going through every single name today. Everyone gets a turn. Everyone gets a turn to be toast. You're all toast. But we're not going to do it in alphabetical order so as to make it easier for you to find your name. You're going to have to listen to the whole thing. It won't be easy for us to remember either. So at some point, we will get on to Deborah again. <laughs> some, of you, some of you will be singled out more than others. But it's not personal. That's admin. Welcome, one, and welcome all to Podquisition, a positive podcast where we tell you whether or not your favourite video games are great, perfect, or toast. Oh, oh, I, I didn't know we were adding something new to the, the, the rankings. Oh, it's over. It's over for video games. Oh. It's over for video games. It's over for Steven. It's over for us all. Everything is... God, I really want some fucking toast now. Right. I ain't gonna lie. I wanted some toast earlier. ran out of bread. I, I didn't... I, I, I couldn't have toast. I, I'm craving it. First of all, right, I need to get some bread. Yeah. And then I need to get a toaster. And then I'm gonna make some toast. Oh, maybe... Maybe I'll go out the shop... Go down to the shop and get a toaster for once in my life. Uh, there are toasters like two blocks from you. I know this as a, as a fact. That is true. I can pop down to, yeah, I can pop down to the shop down the road. They, they'll have a toaster in there. No, mm -hmm. yeah. no bother, mate. I'm not going to do it. I'm putting no. bacon in a baguette today. Yeah. I've got, no, I've got no caloric room for toast. I'm eating bacon in a baguette. A full one. That is all I've got to eat today. No room at the inn after that. <laughs> oh, God. I love bread. So who's played a video game this week that is great, perfect, or toast? And the thing is with toast, right? Is <laughs> I'm yeah. a simple girl, right? Get some toast, right? Spread some butter on that toast. That'll do me. Yeah. That's it. That's all I need. I don't need jams or spreads or anything. I don't begrudge anyone. No, you're not, you're not a condiment. You're not a condiment <laughs> user. No, I leave that up to the condiment king. I don't mind it, but I am never happier than when I've just got some plain toast 
with some butter on it. You're not, you're not gonna like, you know, kick me off the podcast because occasionally I like a bit of marmite on oh, my toast. Oh no! Nah. Heavens, no, Laura. <laughs> I've got no problem with marmite on toast if that's your preferred method of, of toast delivery into your mouth and down your little toast gullet. It's one of the ones that I like. Oh. I'm a big fan. Well, I empower you to do that. I personally empower you to put her marmite, aka's yeast extract, on your toast. Just as a heads up to everyone, Comrade hasn't played anything this week. No, I played fuck all. Yeah, it's going to be a lot of uh, me and Steph talking and Comrade sort of being like, mm-hmm, yep, yep. going to have one of those weeks this week. Yep, yep. Uh, it's, it's just there's too much going on in my life. I can't, I don't have leisure time this, this uh, couple of weeks. I got all sorts of things happening. So, uh, yeah, sorry about that. I feel bad not having played anything. It's fine because I I think I've stolen all of your time to play games because played I've loads. played like yeah, too did. many fucking I've played all the fucking video games this week. There are there's so many of them. I I'm going to start by talking about some of the fucking um demos of things I've played this week. I played a bunch of indie demos for some cool looking stuff. There's a game called Rally Alley Alley. Uh, that seems like it could be a really fun uh, party game with other human people. It has a single-player mode, but the single-player, eh, really not that great, at least in this demo. The idea is that you have a bunch of racers, in a sort of arcade racer style from a top-down perspective, in a holding pen at the start, this little square they all start in, and one racer is picked to be the special one for that round, and they start driving, and they're allowed out of the pen before anyone else, and they create the track underneath them as they drive. Hmm. You have a certain amount of time as that player to create the most complicated track you can that you think's going to stump people up and throw people. you got to make sure it ends back at the start where everyone else was. And then all of the other players basically have a battle royale of get around that track as fast as they can, the the last person to get back eliminated. And this goes around and around until there are fewer and fewer races left. I did not have the opportunity to play enough of this to find out like how they deal with the final two, because presumably there has to be some other slightly different solution for that. But yeah, it it was a it was an interesting concept. It's one of those things that like it's going to need lots of people playing it, and that's always a concern with an indie game, whether you can get the number of people playing it to get matches together. But it was a fun, chaotic bit of fun. Um, it reminded me somewhat of how I felt the first time I played something like Tetris 99, in that I always forget how nice it is to see Battle Royale as a genre applied to other game genres, and not just be 100-person, first-person shooters all the time. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, like, yeah, there's been a couple of puzzle attempts with it. Like, N- Nintendo weirdly has been pushing forward a lot of the examples that exist of non-first-person shooter battle royales, like Mario 99 was a thing, Pac-Man 99, Tetris 99, but it's nice to see an indie trying to tackle that as well, and have a, a competitive racing game battle royale, which is just a neat little concept. I, I'm gonna do like more than one in a row, because I'll, I've got too many fucking things here this week. There's a really neat-looking game called Morse that I had a chance to play. Like the code? Yeah, like the code. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that you've got a grid that enemies are coming towards you on. Think you're sort of plants versus zombies. You're trying to defend a point on one side and 
enemies are moving across grid points towards you. The gimmick is the grid coordinates are labelled with letters and numbers. The rows, I think, are numbers. The uh, columns are letters. You have to use Morse code to set your coordinates of where you want to aim before you can fire. The screen has a Morse code cheat sheet on it, so it's not about having to have known by heart Morse code. But the challenge is in frantically finding what you need, tapping it in, getting your coordinates right so that you can take your shots in in time before enemies have moved off of that space, for example. Mm. The ramping of the up of difficulty uh, seemed really nice. There's um, there's a single player campaign that introduces different enemy types that move in different ways, uh, introduces like different types of ammo on rotation that will behave in different ways. But the core of it is a game of defeating incoming waves of enemies by having to remember long and short dashes very quickly. Hmm. Fun, neat little game. I uh, had, had a good time playing that. I'll do one more and then I'll throw it over to Steph for a bit. In terms of like personal taste, I think one of the most interesting ones I played this week was um, a demo for a game called Neuronet Mendax Proxy. Well, that's a name. Yeah, so... You know Her Majesty Reigns from a few years ago, that game where you're like swiping left or right to make decisions about uh, ruling a kingdom. They've done a couple more of them since I last checked it, because I loved Reigns and they never really followed up on the rest. They got one set in space now. Uh, so this isn't like officially one, but it's it's very it's very similar. Uh -huh. um, the, the conceit is that you're controlling a city planning AI in a cyberpunk future. Mechanically, it's the same kind of thing. You're trying to balance multiple different uh, competing interests. And the, the narrative justification is you're trying to make things better for people without the capitalists who are funding your existence getting pissed off and shutting you off. Oh. And there's some really interesting ways that that is presented. Initially, like, start of the demo was very much like, look, you're talking with your creator. Your creator is like, look, I want you to be honest. I want you to try and do the morally right thing with these tests. Okay, the person who is financing us is about to come in. Tell them what they want to hear. Tell them the things that sound like money's going to happen. And, like, having competing situations around you which might change how you have to answer questions. The writing was really solid, and mechanically it worked the same as, as Reigns did, which was a really good game, and it has a similar degree of some of the choices are really tricky, and balancing progression with the right thing to do, obviously not so easy. If, if you fancy the idea of like a Reigns-style game in cyberpunk as a setting that explicitly is like, capitalism is terrible, but also we have to survive under it, and that's a tricky line to walk. Sounds all right. Yeah. It's probably the thing I've played this week that I'm most fascinated to, like, properly dig into when it releases. Steph, what have you played this week? You, you played anything? Uh, I played Back for Blood. Yeah. The, the Left 4 Dead spiritual successor by that them people what done Left 4 Dead. Yeah. You weren't so hot on it when you played like a beta or something a while back, were you? Yeah, I'm not so hot on it. No. It's still, it's left for dead with no personality. Also, it's really hard. Like people are saying it's better with friends. Like I don't have friends who play video games if I can help it. I barely have friends. Well, I mean, I have more enemies than friends. It's just the way it's shaken out by me being intolerable. Uh, but 
even among my game playing friends, I haven't got anyone who's really into this. So I've been playing it with randoms. And normally even on something like Left 4 Dead, it's fine. Uh, I don't mind playing with randoms as long as they don't fucking speak to me, ever. Uh, but this, I don't even know how friends are dealing with it. I don't know how people are getting through the game. It is so overwhelming. 360 degrees of zombies. And then the tall ones with the big long arm that can just take your health down in seconds turns up. And it's just too much. Like four, four special infected just spawning at once, just ruining your life. I don't get it. I there, I don't know if there's something I don't get, but I don't get it. The only person I could recommend like asking about that, because I know they've been playing it and they've been having a very different experience from the sounds of it, is uh, my lovely wife, Jane. Uh, Jane has been really enjoying it. And I don't know if there's something that, that she's doing differently to you, but <laughs> yeah, I've, I'm hearing such polarizing things about this game. It's... I've gotten through the first level like maybe once. <laughs> Keep dying. I'm very curious about it. I need to. I need to get around and play it. <laughs> it's so tough. And even outside of that, it's low energy. There's no like entertaining banter between the characters. They're all business, basically. They don't have like these distinct personalities like uh, the main characters in the Left 4 Dead games. And the same is true of the zombies. They don't have the mutations in Back for Blood. They don't look as visually distinct as the special infected from Left 4 Dead. They don't have iconic identifying sounds or anything. I've just remembered I've left the fucking bell on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right, that's uh. that, folks. Uh, it's just, it doesn't stand out the way Left 4 Dead did. And with so many horde shooters being a thing now, like all I'm doing is waiting for the new World War Z one to come out. Has that come out yet? Oh. World War Z Aftermath. Uh, September 21st. How'd I miss that? I don't know, but apparently it's out now. All right, I'm going to check that out. I'm going to fucking get that. I love. I loved the, the first World War Z. I liked it, and then I played it more recently and was like, oh, I'm really into this, actually. Yeah. Then Aliens Infestation came out, and I really got into that, even though it's bad. And Back <laughs> for Blood, I'm just, I'm struggling to get into it, and it is so... God, it just feels so unwelcoming. Oh, I'm I'm sorry you're having a bad time with it. Yeah, I'd love to say more, but I can't get... I can't... I can't. <laughs> I'm trying to play it, and it doesn't, le it doesn't like me playing it. The zombies don't like being shot. And there's so many of them. There's so many of them, and they're always behind you. No matter where you go, they are always <laughs> behind you. Don't, uh, there's, don't get me wrong. They're all in front of me as well. But they're always <laughs> behind me. I don't get it. I don't get that game. And I loved Left... I love horde shooters and stuff. I get them. I don't know why I don't get this. In principle, it's the same fucking thing. But it's those fucking tall ones with the big long arms that just club you to death and take forever and a day to put down. So I'll play some other things. <laughs> yeah, tell, tell us more games, please. Lord. I'll tell you some more games. Um, I played a demo for a, a, a game called Paper Trail that seems really interesting. So the idea is that it is a top-down game in which you are trying to get through a series of rooms, but the environment you're walking across is a sheet of paper, which has a different map on the other side of it. 
Uh, you can turn this this piece of paper that your character's walking on over at the corners or halfway down each side, but there are some limitations as to how that can be done. Where your character is stood on the piece of paper, you can't fold over that point. If there are any heavy pushable objects in the map, you can't turn the paper over those points. And it's about working out how to manoeuvre your character and any heavy objects around in such a way that you can fold the page over and reveal a new path that will let you progress. It's a really neat concept that is very well executed. It's one of those, like, within a few seconds of having control of it, it's like, oh, I I instantly get what this is doing. There seem to be a good variety, at least in this demo, of different applications of the core mechanic um, and different ways of mixing up how it could function. I'm always cautious with something like this that so heavily leans on a single mechanic to go, okay, it's going to depend on whether you have enough ideas for this to sustain a whole game. But the demo's variety of uses of its core mechanic was very promising. It's a very visually nice-looking little puzzle exploration game. The core mechanic worked really well. Yeah, it's well worth checking out that. It, it is a very interesting-looking game. I played a demo for a game called Diffused. D asterisk fused. Ooh. Asterisk! There's an oh. asterisk in the name, I know! Oh, God, we're dancing on the sun now. <laughs> so this is a... New Game Boy game. Uh, uh, I played it on a Game Boy cartridge. It is a pretty simple concept. You play as a character on a grid-based uh, arena. It is a turn-based game about trying to defuse bombs. Every time you take a step on this grid, bombs will get one stage closer to exploding. There is no pressure to take your turns in any particular speed. It is properly turn-based. And you're trying to pick routes that will allow you to, as effectively as possible, defuse bombs in as few moves as possible without accidentally blowing yourself up in the process. There's not much more to it than that. It is a neat little game, and I am a real sucker for games being released on old hardware and being able to be like, oh, hey, here's a fun, neat little thing I can plug in an old system and it works. It's not amazing, but the novelty... The novelty helped. I had fun with it. I don't think that fun would last terribly long at all. But if you're if you're the kind of person that goes, I will get a kick out of the novelty of getting to play a decent enough game on it that has been ported back to old hardware. Yeah, it's a fun it's a fun little game. It's not amazing. It's not great. It's good enough. I will probably Here's the thing, if I bought a copy, I'd probably play it for about 15 minutes and then forget I owned a copy of it. Like, I know that's true. I had fun during the time I was playing it. I know it wouldn't be long-lasting. I'm gonna do one more and then I'll throw it back. So I played so much fucking stuff this week. It was a week of trying to just dip my toe into a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I played a demo for a game called You Suck at Parking. It is a time trial-based game uh, from an overhead perspective where you control a car with very fast acceleration and deliberately a little bit wonky steering. It's a little a little oversensitive steering. And you are trying to, as quickly as possible, navigate courses and park very precisely on tiny parking spaces. 
it's one of those games that like wants you to get into a loop of very quick, oops, I messed it up, hit restart, try it again, try it again, try it again, got it done. The core problem I have with it is that there doesn't seem to be a great incentive to get specific times other than beating your own times. There isn't a lot in place to be like, here is like the goal time you're trying to beat, or here is uh, some reward or progression or some kind of something for doing well. There is no real grading that I saw of like, is that a good time or a bad time? It's just do the level, set a time, go back and try and beat that time if you want. It lacked any real structure, which is a shame because the core gameplay played really nicely. It just, it didn't have anything to make me feel like I wanted to play more of it. Uh, what about you, Steph? What have you been playing this week? Uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, Apple Arcade stuff again. Yeah? Just because it's, it's really good. It's still like a really good deal. And there's tons of quality phone games on that. But I played quite a few because I was on a train. I, f- I forgot to mention uh, I had a busy weekend. Oh, yeah, you did. You did your, your wrestle, wrestle events. Yeah, I went to my two favorite promotions to do stuff with enjoy wrestling and uh rise wrestling of course my home promotion enjoy was very good oh god they take the best photos oh those photos are so good i am envious that photographer knows how to really really accentuate the best they're they're real real good photos i want to fuck commander sterling (laughs) based on the photos they took or at least that one um but yeah enjoy was very good they're going to split the event we filmed into parts and it will be on the Enjoy Wrestling YouTube channel, uh, Night Moves. Um, I should be in episode one. Uh, but yeah, 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 good stuff. Just quickly going to say that uh, at Rise Wrestling, I was challenged to a match at Rise's anniversary show in December. Um, we'll have the official date for that coming soon. But I accepted the match and I made it an I quit match. And... Also accepted the stipulation that whoever says the words I quit will also lose all of their power at Rise. Uh, Rise, of course, being where I um, have reigned as champion region and general manager and have been running the show excellently, in my opinion. But for those unfamiliar, an I quit match is very simple. You have to beat your opponent so brutally that they say the words I quit out loud uh, into a microphone for all to hear. Uh, That's it. No other rules. Uh, this will be the most violent match I've certainly ever been part of, either as a competitor or as a manager. So this will be the most violent thing I've ever done. Uh, and I am going to fight very bitterly to the end to make Brandon say I quit. I'm going to pull out everything. And I'm going to wrestle as well. How'd you get it? <laughs> I've heard some rumours about what you might be planning and, oh, mm, that's, that, mm, it's going to be, oh, some... it's going to be a day. Yeah. So if you make it out, and we're going to try and stream it as well. If you make it out to one wrestling event that I'm involved in, this will be the one. This will be, this is big. Um, but yeah, yeah, on the way there, I played Fantasian, which is uh, an RPG on Apple Arcade uh, by Mr. Walker. It's good. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. It's very traditional. It's, uh, you know, turn-based RPG uh, about someone with amnesia. <gasps> Don't remember stuff. Oh, I wonder if there's a mystery or a surprise we're going to find out. Oh, God. But other than that trope, it is the music's really good because it's Mist Walker. Mm. It looks really pretty. 
the combat is quite good. They um, have this thing where you can like move, like use the touchscreen to curve your attacks around things. Uh, so if there's like an enemy formation and there's an enemy in the way, you can kind of arc your projectile so it goes round and hits an enemy behind. Or, you know, you can draw out the attack direction to try and get more than one enemy with the attack at once. So that's pretty cool. Uh, one thing I really like is they have this thing that you can switch on and off that rather than make random encounters occur as they happen, as, as you trigger them, it stocks them. So rather than, you can switch it off. So you can go around the, the game hitting random encounters and battling as and when they occur. Or you can switch on this little dealie that triggers random encounters but doesn't throw you into the fight. It takes the monsters from those encounters and stores them. You can store up to 30 monsters and at any time you can trigger a battle with them. So you fight every enemy you skipped at once. And it works out really well. I've not stocked enough to... Because once it hits 30, you've automatically got to fight them. And then you've got to fight 30 enemies at once. But I've, I've stocked quite a few, and it works out surprisingly well. It's convenient without turning off auto-battle. Uh, not auto-battle, without turning off uh, encounters. So that you don't feel like you're missing anything, or you miss vital experience or items. Uh, it just lets you take a bit of control... Um, with the random encounters. It's like, I don't want to fight right now. I'll fight when I'm ready. I'll fight on my time. And it's such a little subtle thing. I didn't think I'd like it. I thought it'd be a layer of complication I didn't need. But it streamlines it because if you want to get to the next bit of story or you're backtracking and don't want to deal with bullshit, you can, yeah, just put the enemies to one side and be like, I'll deal with you little fuckers later. Uh, so I like that. I found that quite good. I played a couple other ones. I played that Grindstone that I hear is quite popular. It's like a similar to, to a match three style game, except the blocks are monsters and you draw lines through uh, monsters of the same color and your character is in the rows of monsters and then will just like hack and slash across the line, killing every monster in the way. Uh, and then more ones, you know, the monsters will drop and more ones will come in. Um, and periodically each monster will attack in um, a radius. So you've got to be not within range of them when you land. And that's quite good. Yeah. Yeah. I haven't got much more to say than that, really. Um, just to say that, you know, I, I tried Apple Arcade when it was new and liked it a lot. And going back to it now, I'm I'm impressed. Yeah. There's one too many games that were like that Castlevania one that were like they didn't work as microtransaction laden cynical wastes of space. And now they've tried to turn themselves into real games. Um, and it's really obvious when they do that because games that rely on microtransactions are designed to not be good. So when they try and make themselves good, they really look wallpapered over. Yeah. There is quite a bit of that, but the games that are actually designed to be Apple Arcade games are really good. Certainly better than anything on that fucking Google Play Pass. Yeah. Very disappointed with that one. Very impressed with Apple Arcade. I do gotta say. Nice. Yeah. I'm gonna take a break from the indie demos I've been doing for a bit. 
I've been playing around uh, with that 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 OLED switch a little bit. Oh yeah, I've I've got one of them. Yeah, it it speaks volumes that I neglected to mention. <laughs> it's a tool. I mean, I think we can sum sum up that OLED switch like very basically as if you already have a switch, you do not need really to upgrade don't. for this. But if you're looking to buy a Switch and you're like, ah, there's $50 difference, is this one better? Yes, yeah, better Switch. It's a better Switch. It, is the battery life as good? Uh, battery life is slightly better. Good. Yeah, good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah so for, for anyone who isn't aware of it, the, the, the short version of what's actually different with the OLED Switch is it's not really any larger, but the screen is larger because they've reduced a lot of the bezel. It's not that much larger of a screen, but it... It feels noticeably larger of a screen, which is nice. The overall build quality seems improved. The Joy-Cons feel a bit more stable, uh, slotted into the console. The back kickstand is so much nicer. It's all made of a nicer material. It all just feels slightly better put together. The screen is obviously the thing that people are excited about. And understandably so, though I will say that as someone who... I mean, well, I, I don't use my Switch, but if I do use my Switch. It's parked on my ass on my couch in front of my TV. I don't think of it as a mobile, as a handheld, and I don't, as a general rule, carry around handhelds and play games on them. So for me, nice. Maybe it would mean that regular Switch hardware might clearance out price reduction, get a good deal on a Switch if you're only going to put it on your TV and don't want to wait around for that 4K Switch that isn't it's not happening obviously it's not happening nintendo tells us it's not happening so there's no way there's a 4k switch on the way i mean that's the thing as well is like hey if you can wait a year the 4k oled one's probably gonna be a thing and if you want one now in europe they've already discounted the base model of the switch they're probably gonna do it elsewhere um that being said as someone that has one that OLED screen is real fucking nice. Like, I I have been really enjoying the quality of that screen. Colours pop very nicely, and the difference between dark and light shades is very pronounced. That's what OLED screens do. It, this is a good one. Um, there have been some shit OLED screens used in some handhelds in the past. The Vita had, like, it technically had an OLED screen. It wasn't a very good one. This is a good OLED screen, if that's the thing you care about and you play a lot of handheld. I play a lot of handheld Switch because I multitask. I spend a lot of my time where I'm playing Switch games also watching things historically. It's nice to have a nicer screen, but no one no one needs this. No. It, it isn't in any way a necessary thing. You should feel FOMO for not trading in your, your base Switch to get. The Nintendo Switch OLED. What's the point? <clears throat> Seriously, what is the point? Because I spent a lot of money on this and I really need to know. The dopamine hit with, did not last long enough. <laughs> Do you know how many crash dummies I have to buy now to get that sweet, <laughs> sweet hit of validation of just something happening in my fucking life? I used to get that sense of, that, that sense of joy from a growing career. What the fuck am I meant to do now? Well, you can take some comfort that you're clawing a little bit of the money that Uncle Sam was just going to steal from you back in the form of a deduction. That's true. <laughs> That's true. Oh, God. I have been playing something on the Switch. Um, I'm just talking about, like, I have it. It's got a nicer screen. 
Um, I've been playing that Metroid Dread on it. Right. I can't remember what it is, but someone said something that game does, and it really turned me off of it. But now I can't remember what they said. Well, I, uh, well Kotaku tells me it's emulatable in 4K. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Good. I'm just going to say it. I've got no reason to justify it. I've got nothing, nothing to back me up here or nothing important to add to the conversation. It's good that it's been emulated. I'm just going to say it. It's funny because I saw a lot, I mean, a lot of reaction to that Kotaku story being like, oh, 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 what are you doing? You don't encourage it. This is a series that desperately needs the money. This is a franchise that we need to show support for. People are going to steal it and wear it. No, it's just like, no, 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 no. First of all, that's not the point of the Kotaku story at the end of the day. It runs in 4K. Yeah. It's in, it plays in 4K. That's the point. Yeah. The, the, the point is very clearly that, like, hey, Nintendo, you need to be aware of the fact that games you're releasing today are running better than your releases on the day of release. That is a problem. That is something you need to be aware of if you want people to not just pirate them. I also feel it's a little bit of, hey, stop lying. Yeah. Stop lying. Just just admit that you're going to release this, and it's going to be in your best interest to do so, because people will think you're not so fucking backwards. It's frustrating to me that, that that's the response to that story. Also, Nintendo doesn't give a shit. They always do Mario because, yes, Mario always sells, but also it's just their flagship. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Metroid Dread is, like, what, one of their most fucking popular fucking releases ever or something? Like, it's it's on the best... It's top of the best sellers on the Switch sales. It is the best-selling Metroid game there has ever been, but that is part of a wider trend that basically every Nintendo property that has been brought to Switch has sold better than it ever has on previous things. Kotaku's article doesn't mean jack shit. It doesn't fucking... None of this matters! All I will say is I don't think that the people who are who are saying, ah, uh, don't advocate pirating it... I, I don't think that they're necessarily right, but I, can, I I will say that I understand the perspective from the outside as someone who maybe doesn't follow the industry terribly closely of we've gone nearly 20 years without a 2D Metroid and over a decade without a, me like a Metroid game full stop. Please don't pirate it. We don't want them to stop making it, to not make more of them. And I get that that's not how it works, but I also get how someone on the outside might see a story about piracy and go, oh god, we're going to go another 20 years without another one of these. Piracy numbers are not, clearly are not having an impact on this selling well enough to justify sequels. I think I read this morning that, like, Football Manager, the year where they, like, they, they've estimated of the copies that are pirated, about 1.7% could be called a lost sale. Mm. Uh, because, of mm. course, you know, piracy does not equal lost sales. But they estimate that there's maybe about 1.7% of pirates who might have otherwise bought it. Now it's been pointed out, well, that's still like $3 million that they could put towards a <laughs> um, new project. First of all, that's not where the money will go. Let's disavow ourselves of this idea that, oh, well, that's money they could have used to make their future games better. That's not how capitalism works, my friend. And second of all, it's only 1.7%. Fuck it. Mm -hmm. They'll be fine. One, one thing I do want to say also that in this case, the pirated version is a result of a pre-release leak. 
Mm. And this is entirely anecdotal, so take it for what you will. But every person that I have talked to who acquired and played that leaked version then went and bought a copy. Yeah, because it's a good game that made people go, oh, hey, yeah, no, okay, this is good. I want to play this. That being said, I have played Metroid Dread and would like to talk about the game itself. Oh, if you must. I can't guarantee whether I'll talk about whatever the thing Steph heard and doesn't remember is or not, but let me know if I stumble upon it. Yeah, I'll try and remember as well. Yeah, so classic 2D Metroid game. Uh, it controls really nicely. Um, I'm a big fan of the uh, right stick full control aiming rather than just up, down, left and right of some of the, the old Metroid games. The gimmick for this one is obviously that there are big, basically unkillable uh, robots roaming around certain areas of the map, and you've got to try and just get past them alive. It reminded me tonally a lot of playing Alien Isolation. Uh, These robots very much follow the physical rules of the environment they're going through. They don't feel like they are teleporting around. The game also gives you a lot of feedback as to whether the these things uh, have noticed you or not. When you're walking on surfaces that are going to uh, make sound that they will hear, you get like a little yellow flash with your footsteps that's like, okay, I'm making sound right now, they might hear that. Uh, they have a very clear vision cone, which is justified because they're a big robot with a searchlight, but it's very clearly defined, like, that is where they're looking. If you want to get around behind them and sneak past them, stay out of that cone. There is a lot of feedback given to be like, this is how close they are to discovering your location and how much of a gap you have to try and get past them. If they do encounter you, they're not technically one-hit kills. You can do a frame-perfect counter to knock them off, but the game itself tells you that is virtually impossible, and I think that's accurate. You essentially have to treat them as, if this thing finds me, I am dead. If it gets me, I am dead. If it sees me, I need to just fucking run and get somewhere it can't reach me so that it loses sight of me. And that tension is really good. I, I have really enjoyed the cat and mouse game of trying to avoid and outrun these things and the tension that comes along with. It's certainly not the whole game. There are some very clear visual tells to be like, you have entered an area where one of these things is is patrolling. There is a visual layer that's layered over it. The other thing that has made me enjoy this a lot more than I typically enjoy Metroid games is there is a setting that will, when you're exploring and you're making your map as you go, Any doors that you can't get open, paths that you can't yet take, things that you don't have the tools to do, will be marked on your map with a clear visual signifier that like, oh, these are all the same kind of thing I can't get past, and just labelled with some question marks. If you get a power-up that will let you go past those, it will label them on your map. Yeah, I heard about that. Yeah. Uh, It'll give you, it'll tell you that power-up that you just got gets you past this. You can then click on your map on that that kind of door or passage and go highlight all of those. And it will now highlight like very clearly on the map for you. These are all the places you can now go because you have that power up. I really like that. It has felt very respectful mm-hmm. of my time and I have enjoyed the game a lot more for not stumbling around eternally because I missed one doorway somewhere. That was a selling point for me because, well... 
my legendary memory issues. Mm. I can't remember jack shit. I'm not going to remember that there was a place I had to go. I can't remember shit very well, and I can't hold visual information in my head. I fucking suck at getting lost in these games. I loved Carrion. That having no map and no way to remind myself where I was going made that game really difficult to get through. This makes that much easier and has given me a much smoother experience. But yeah, I'm having a really good time with it. It's it's a very nice game. Good. It was the parry mechanic, I think, that I heard about and was like, because I'm I'm terrible with parries at the best of times. Okay. What I'll say for this is, other than the the robots that the game will say those are essentially unparryable, don't count on being able to do it. Every other enemy has a very wide parry window and a very specific tell of when they are parryable. The enemy will glow with a white edge around them during the time in which you can parry them. Like, be that a, an attack they're charging up or a dash they're making at you. If you see them flash, uh, like flash up white, that's your parry window. Right. And I, as someone who struggles with parry mechanics, have had no trouble parrying in this game. It has not been an issue. Yeah, my only real complaints about it is that there is a lack of anything in the way of even basic settings options for this game. Like, there's no difficulty options, there's no subtitle tweaking, there's no there's no nothing. It's, it's do you want to change the brightness? Do you want to look at what the controls are? That's it. Right. And like, that's not ideal, that's not great, but I've had a re- I'm having a really good time with it. Anytime I'm not playing it, I want to be playing more of it. I'm having having a good time with it. What about you, Steph? Have you pl- played anything else? That's about it for me, mate. Yeah? Yeah, mate. Yeah. Mate, me old mucker. That's about it. Well, in that case, should we get onto some news? Conrad, do you want to come back in the room and talk news? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Conrad. Oh, hi. What have you played this week? Uh, what have you played? <laughs> actually, I, I played Autonauts, like... An hour or two. It's still a good game. You still program robots. I still like the way the progression opens up in such a way that you couldn't possibly keep up with the rate of new things being made available to you. And so eventually you reach a stage about five hours into the game where you're like paralyzed by what thing to work on next. And none of it's actually going to make progress for you until it's all done in like 20 more hours of play. It's a good game. Mm. It's a good game. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk some news then. Uh, here's, here's a first story. Uh, Eurogamer had an interview with EA's chief experience officer, Chris Bruzo, to talk about FIFA and loot boxes. EA does not give any ground. That's not surprising. It is interesting to read an interview where someone does attempt to push back against FIFA when they do a lot of their no 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 it's it's fun and uh pe- only only a tiny percentage of people buy our microtransactions. It is nice to see like 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 some journalism that isn't completely unchallenging at least. Yeah, and I, I think like the interesting thing about reading this is seeing quite how locked in EA are on some of these discussion points that we sort of know, but like how unwilling to move off of the company line they are. There's a few things in there that that caught attention. There's one that you in particular, Conrad, uh, noted, which was their talk of game of skill as a phrase they love to use. That's a good one. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a a history of that 
terminology being used to justify things that are effectively gambling and would be considered illegal um, or used in such a way as to make things legal that had not been legal or there'd been a prohibition against pinball is a is an example of that from from gaming yeah they proved it was a game of skill yeah by playing pinball in court and then later admitted like oh no I, I, it was luck <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because the, the the thing about this particular interview is when this EA person talks about uh, FIFA being a game of skill, he's deliberately being obtuse because he keeps being asked about loot boxes are randomised chance that you spend money on. There is no skill involved. And he's like, no, no, no. FIFA is a game of skill. The better player will beat the worse player. Having Having loot box rewards doesn't guarantee that you'll win the match. It's like... No, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying that your loot boxes are not a game of skill. Yeah, and they know they're not fooling us. They're not saying this to fool us. They're saying this to cover their ass if it ever comes up in, you know, a legal issue. Right. Yeah, and that's the reason why no interview like this will ever get them to move any ground. But it should at least be difficult for them. Every fucking interview with these vultures should be difficult. Make them squirm, at least. Make them answer for it every single fucking time. Even if the answer is bullshit, make them repeat that bullshit every single fucking time. Exactly. Like... This interview is an interesting read, and I would recommend people go read it. Uh, it's up on, on Eurogamer. It's called The Big Interview EA FIFA, FIFA and Loot Boxes. But, like, this shouldn't be the standout. This shouldn't be the only example I can point out of someone sat down in a room with a high-up EA executive asking these questions. And, mm-hmm. like, look, their answers are bullshit. Like, they, they, they actively will not answer the questions, and I think that tells us some interesting stuff. I think that tells us... I mean, something we we knew, which is that EA will never change their loot box approach in FIFA unless they are forced to by outside intervention, because they will not acknowledge there is a problem. They will not acknowledge the problems being placed in front of them and will talk about other things and sidestep answering. They're never going to change unless we make them, and that's only going to happen if more journalists care enough to do shit like this. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Make them answer! Make them answer indeed. Make them answer. So we got some more Twitch news this week. <laughs> hey, you know how they had a real bad uh, time last week with um, that big leak? There's a story on videogameschronicle.com. Platform accused of regularly neglecting security warnings. Yeah. We touched a little last week on some, some Twitter threads that claimed this was going on, but there, there is... More of a story going on this week. Uh, So the original story was over on The Verge, uh, in which several former Twitch employees claimed the company didn't do enough to tackle security and safety warnings over the years leading up to this incident. One source claimed that Twitch had regularly opted to uh, not to disclose security issues, including one in 2017, which enabled scam artists to contact streamers and resulted in Twitch accounts being linked to compromised Amazon ones. Another source claimed employees often raised concerns about safety, including the potential for raids to be used in an abusive way prior to the feature's launch, but Twitch failed to sufficiently heed those warnings as it was more concerned with quickly launching the feature. The piece goes on, but the the, the gist of it is, a lot of people working in Twitch kept saying to upper management, hey, hey, something is either bad or is going to be bad, you should do something about it, and Twitch went... 
no, we, we want to get it out now, though. Yeah. And just brushed aside concerns. It's almost like Twitch is reaping. Yeah. It's almost like Twitch has done a bit of the old reaping. It might have sown in the past and now it happens to be reaping. Yeah. It may be that the Piper's come along and said, Oi, pay up. Yeah. Fucking Twitch. I mean, the thing is, is it's like, it's not really news. Corporation did something cheap and quick and had no quality control and didn't fucking care. And it is just... That's everything. And it, unfortunately, we can't fully revel in them getting like bitten in the ass by it because it bites everyone relying on that platform at the same fucking time. Yeah. I had to change my password. I had to take time out of my day for that. I had to remember what my new one was because it was different than what it was before. Yeah, I forgot mine immediately after changing it. The moment I remember passwords, something happens and I've got to fucking change it. Yeah, yeah. Fucking hell, Twitch. Uh... Don't make us reap along with you. I didn't sow. (laughs) I would have loved to have been next to Twitch just sewing away thinking, oh, I fucking love this. Reaping without sowing. That's capitalism for the rest of us. That is indeed. Uh, Another news story we got this week, uh, originally reported by VG247. Microsoft is considering uh, changing their approach to right to repair. So according to VG247, a shareholder advocacy group uh, filed a report in June urging Microsoft to analyse the environmental and social benefits of making devices easier to repair so that consumers can repair their own tech. Microsoft has, as a result, announced that it will run its own study into increasing the accessibility of parts so that consoles can be repaired by end users, uh, perhaps rather than Microsoft themselves or people buying replacement consoles. All right, so, yeah, right to repair is important. Like, I think it's a, an incredibly important thing for you to be able to fix the things that you buy yes. and use. Whether that means do it yourself or take it to some other person who under- has a greater understanding of the operation of that machine and will know how to better repair it, you know, that's fine. Either way. But the ability for people outside of the manufacturer to be able to repair devices, I think, is essential. And and it's something that as technology has become more and more a part of our lives, that ability has been taken from us. Um, whereas it wasn't it wasn't it didn't it wasn't a question of whether or not you had a right to do it because you had all of the components there and who the fuck was going to stop you. Yeah. All, all of the components used to be very off-the-shelf things, and it was much easier to get a thing that would work in your piece of electronics. Or they were just mechanical items. Like, you, you can't even count on mechanical items anymore to not have something that prevents you from being able to repair them. Uh, you look at automobiles. Everybody used to be able to repair an automobile just, like, 40 years ago. You know, like, within my lifetime, cars were... A thing that you could buy, and if you had the skills, fix yourself forever. And that's not possible now. On the most basic of fronts, you can't refill your own ink cartridges anymore because there are computer chips in them that say, no, you can't. Right. Yeah, the ability to just take a thing that is functional and 
get it back into working order yourself in a way that works for you is a rapidly disappearing right. That said, like that isn't why we're seeing it being presented by Microsoft here. It is it is because of environmental impact and because of shareholders. And I think it was you, Conrad, that was saying in the chat this week that it's very clearly probably to avoid regulation. Yeah, it feels like an anti-regulation maneuver. Yeah. Hey, we're doing this good, positive environmental thing. No need to worry about all the other fucking damage we're doing. Uh, that that's really how I feel. Is is that's that's the the end game here for them? Because shareholders don't generally do things out of the goodness of their heart in in capitalism. And it's better for shareholders if people whose consoles break have to just buy a new console or go through uh, the company that makes it. Is it? Is it? See, that's the thing, too. I have to question. That's I think that's one of the one of the other aspects of this that they're really going to be running numbers and looking at, because when you're the only one who can fix it, you're stuck holding the bag to fix it. Right. Mm. And if people can just fix it themselves, then you don't have to deal with any of that fucking infrastructure. It's like, oh, there's a YouTube tutorial. Go deal with it yourself, asshole. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. It could have an effect on warranties, um, their length, uh, what they cover and how that could ultimately be beneficial for a bottom line of a company. So I wouldn't rule out the possibility that this is less altruistic in more than one way. Well, no, yeah, like I don't think it's altruistic. No, I think that no, there no, no. is somewhere that they think this is going to benefit them. I wasn't sure if it would be the money. But it could be the money. Yeah, it could very well be the money. Um, but regardless, this is one of those things that however we get them to the point where we get right to repair back, I, I'm fine with that, ultimately. Um, I think this is a, a, a an important thing. I believe in a need for us to create sufficiency for ourselves. Yep. The less we have to rely and are forced to rely on big corporations, the more power we have back. Right. They're not giving up control without a very good reason uh, for them. And that's fine. But if we get the control, then I'll, you know, I'll deal with that. I'll accept that. Yeah. Yeah, agreed. Uh, right, there's a fucking complicated, messy fucking story around Activision Blizzard and their oh. lawsuits. Let's try and summarise this as best we can. So, there are two different Activision Blizzard lawsuits that we've recently talked about. There is the California uh, Department of Fair Employment and Housing, uh, who were the first lawsuit to have really surfaced. They haven't made any attempts to settle or anything like that. They have been pushing to find out more information. And then more recently, we had the Equal Employment Opportunities Commission, the EEOC, uh, the, the federal bit, doing their lawsuit and settling with Activision Blizzard for $18 million and no wrongdoing had to be admitted. So DFEH is the first one. EEOC is the one that settled. So the DFEH decided to file a complaint about the uh, EEOC with their whole, hey, you don't have to admit wrongdoing, do a, put 18 million quid aside, basically arguing that they were concerned that some parts of the settlement might impact their ability to do their lawsuit. They cited some things like people who claim money from that settlement fund would be able to have any record that there was ever any harassment claim they made, etc., removed from their employee file. 
the DFEH cited that as an example of that happening might make it more difficult for us to do our investigation. In response, the EEOC turns around and says, okay, but two of your lawyers on your case, the ones who filed the objection against us, used to be lawyers for us working on this case for us. Now that we've noticed they're there, are they working using trade secrets they weren't supposed to? Well, okay, hold on, hold on. We should, we should, uh, let me, let me, I'm going to clear a bit of this, all right? Okay. The EEOC clapped back saying, well, okay, but there's a conflict of interest involved in your case, which is that we have these two attorneys that are former EEOC employees who went to go and work on this case, and they are two of the earliest uh, attorneys to be involved in the development of this case against Activision and Blizzard, and they had been key in that EEOC case prior. Now, sometimes this is fine. Like, this is the kind of thing where if, and I don't, you know, you don't know the circumstances of how those people left and went to this new job or whatever, but you can get, you know, prior authorization to say, oh yeah, this is cool that you're going to work on this, that's fine. But what is clearly a problem is, uh, it's a conflict of interest to go to your old employer and try and get in the way of them doing yes their approach to this yes yeah you have you have gone to a competitor and then tried to interfere with your original company that is just a very clear conflict of interest and that's a real problem also we can point out here that that is a a serious issue in the structure of our governmental system that we can view these as opposing groups, even though they both represent state apparatuses. Indeed. That's a problem. It is a problem. <laughs> it's a challenge to overcome. But the, ultimately, the problem with this becomes it threatens the entirety of the California suit. Indeed. And that is concerning because the California suit of the two of them seemed like the one that wasn't just going to walk in and like find a settlement and leave it's for 18 million dollars an incredibly cheap settlement yeah. yeah yeah it seemed like of the two it was the one that wanted to actually dig in and try and prove some shit and this could jeopardize that entire lawsuit because legal procedure wasn't followed properly i don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist Mm. Because I, I think that that's incredibly irresponsible behavior. However, you said something when you were describing this incident that stuck out in my mind. Yeah. Which was, we've suddenly discovered that these two lawyers that used to work for us were... This is not necessarily the smallest professional community on Earth. But it is a relatively small professional community. I would be stunned to discover that it wasn't well known by the EEOC that these people were there. And I would be even less stunned to find out that some attorney working for Activision Blizzard caught wind and got wise mm. and figured out that they could fix their whole fucking problem for the low, low price of $18 million to the federal government. I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist. I mean, I'm going to read something from a lawyer called Richard Hoag, who focuses on the video game industry. Uh, I'm just going to read a little thing he said about this, because 
it certainly doesn't hurt your case. This is a pretty massive thing, and if true would call into question large proportions of the DFEH process, certainly as against EEOC directly. It might even provide Activision with its own defense to the original suit. Yep. Now, that is the key fucking thing here is not only is it causing fights between these two lawsuits, this could provide Activision evidence to turn around and say, you're engaging in conflicts of interests. That is a demonstrable thing that has happened. We believe that you, you might be doing the same with us. You might be, you know... You might be doing untoward things in your investigation of us. That's a defense now that can exist. Yeah, it's pretty fucked. It's pretty fucked. I I wouldn't say I got my hopes up because I'm pretty cynical by this point. Uh, I don't know if anybody listening may have noticed that. But um, this was, I was, it was really nice to see the state of California taking some action. But in typical fashion, it's fucked. They were always going to get away with it one way or another. Yeah, exactly. It was always going to be a slap on the wrist compared to just the the mountains of cash they have. They were always going to walk away. Bobby Kotick was never going to face anything. The executives who did this were never going to face anything. I know, but this was the most promising looking lawsuit we have had against a company like this. And it's, I, I know for hope was foolish, I didn't think California would be the ones to shoot themselves in the foot. No, I've been to California. <laughs> uh, I I hoped that at least it would have been, look, a weaselly shitty company squirreled around the legal process and we, we still would have the one villain to blame for this. But now there is some incompetence to also blame for this not working out and that's a shame. Ubisoft's back in the news because of course they are. Oh, I bet it's positive. Uh, <laughs> Ubisoft employees call for removal of role model evaluation goal over concerns of misuse. So a group of workers at Ubisoft has demanded that the publisher remove a proposed new attribute from its performance evaluation process, claiming that the change could end up favouring abusive individuals rather than the people it is meant to protect. So the short version of this is that Some employees within Ubisoft, uh, part of how they are paid is dependent on how they do in end-of-year evaluations, and this new role model standard that is being added to the things that people can be be rated on uh, is incredibly vaguely worded. Uh, Apparently, it includes such phrases as showing empathy, being inclusive, having a constructive approach. And and Ubisoft is going to judge who shows empathy and is responsible. Toe the line. That's what a role model does. A role model toes the line. Yeah. Yeah. This is very much the point that the these Ubisoft staff are making, is that their concern is that abusive higher-ups will reward people who toe the line and will punish people who speak up. Yeah, so here's what the, the, the group said in a statement to gamesindustry.biz. It will allow management to boast that it's fighting against harassment via salary impact, while completely ignoring the fact that it's a tool that only intervenes after the fact, since it's used at the time of evaluation. It doesn't prevent harassment happening. It's riddled with critical flaws. The predominant role of the manager in a situation where problems come from hierarchical superiors is that possible discrimination will be brought against people who don't fit in. It could effectively become another harassment and discrimination tool to the group's management, rather than one used to fight against it. 
the examples given were that someone could be evaluated negatively for being non-constructive or difficult to integrate with the team because they spoke up about harassment rather than being a team player. They also pointed out that a lot of what this seems to be looking at could harm the ability for people who are, say, autistic to get bonuses the way they previously did, because if they do not present as being a team player in the same way that a neurotypical person might do, they might not be seen as fulfilling the standards they're meant to to get their their bonuses. There's a lot of issues with it that have been brought forward, and they're basically saying Ubisoft... Please don't have a really vague tool that gives money to people who are vaguely empathetic team players, as judged by their direct superiors. Yeah, I mean... Ubisoft shouldn't get to judge who has empathy. No, right? The company protected abusers for years. Indeed. If anything, the idea of a role model of what is is an insult, an active insult. Yeah... Yeah, because like here's the thing, let's say this gets enacted. How long do you think it's gonna take for it to turn out that someone who was given the role model award turned out to be a serial abuser? Cause like it doesn't seem impossible. I've got a couple of other quick news stories to rattle through. Remember how Fortnite a while back added a mode that was very clearly like Among Us is popular, let's do that. The developers of Among Us were very unhappy about that at the time and made no secret of the fact that they had reached out to Epic Games and gone, hey, would you like to collaborate on something? Heard nothing back and then, oops, here's a clone of of your game. It seems from public-facing stuff like there might be some bridge building between those two companies. Initially, there was a tweet on the Fortnite account that credited Among Us as an inspiration for imposters. And then there was some back and forth between the Among Us and Fortnite Twitter accounts that was playful. Oh, oh, thank you for being inspiration. Maybe we work on something sometime. Like, clearly trying to imply, hey, we've reached an agreement. We're going to work on something together. I hope the Among Us developers make good money out of this, because... Boy. Eh, fuck, fuck Epic in this situation. Player Unknown's Battlegrounds has got to be pissed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When's Fortnite going to tweet, hey, thank you, Player Unknown's Battlegrounds, for the, for the inspiration. Maybe we can work together sometime. Player Unknown just sat there going, oh. <laughs> See, I want nothing more than the PUBG Twitter account to, to publicly tweet at Fortnite, hey, when's our inspiration tweet coming, huh? <laughs> oh. Credit to the artist, question mark? Yeah, yeah. I guess the Among Us developers kicked up enough of a stink that Epic felt, okay, fine, we'll do something. Well, and I think it also may speak to a shift in the winds where Fortnite is itself concerned, because as a game and of this sort, of this online multiplayer kind, they exist on a curve, and they are on the other side of that curve very possibly and doing everything they can to either plateau it or extend that curve out while they seek some other way to get another new spike. Um, the metaverse stuff, all of these things are aimed at retention yeah, and hopeful growth. Yeah, But it's retention. It's keeping people in. And you're not going to keep people in if they get pissed off because their other favorite game is shitting all over you for stealing their vibe. 
Like they they are now at a point where they can't be assholes. They need to make friends. At least that's that's the way I see it. I mean, you're not you're not wrong. And they got buckets of cash to throw, so might as well throw some of it at a indie dev that they can probably afford to buy off. Yes, throw some money at. And you know what, Innersloth, good for you. Get that paper. Yeah, yeah, get that paper. Cool. Last couple of stories, very quickly. Paradox staff criticise culture of silence, which let man with reputation for harassment hold senior role for years. Also apparently a toxic studio where women say they were treated as token hires. This story comes from a Swedish daily newspaper, which I'm going to mispronounce, uh, Svenska Dagbladet, detailed a culture of silence at the studio behind Crusader Kings, Hearts of Iron, etc. We won't go into the specifics of the harassment, but uh, a senior manager was previously known for unwelcome approaches and harassment at another game company. This is apparently public knowledge. And then they got hired him. Yeah, they decided that wasn't a problem and that they were going to keep him there. Physical contact unwanted with female staff. So apparently, so he'd been taken to court and had to pay a settlement just months before being hired at Paradox. So, like, it's not like this was a secret that he had been like this. Uh, Speaking to Eurogamer, one woman criticised Paradox's management structure as being ineffective in dealing with harassment of junior employees. This was due to middle management being focused on pleasing senior staff and therefore not wanting to raise issues up the chain. If I bring something to my middle, middle, middle management manager, he's not going to address those things to my senior management because they might be disliked, the woman said, calling it a toxic culture, where if you've built your whole leadership on being liked by senior management, you become pretty useless for people you're working with. Yeah. And this speaks volumes about a lot of these um, game studios that are run like boys clubs, where like we we saw this with Rockstar where you um were expected if you wanted to advance in the company to go to strip clubs and party with everyone. Yeah. Not rocking the boat, not talking, not not speaking up. It's so common in the game industry. And well, many industries, most industry. If you know that your direct manager is not going to raise issues up the chain and do anything, it is going to allow people who are known abusers who work in the company to keep working there unchallenged because no one's raising challenges up the chain for you. And it's absolutely by design is the thing. It's not that, oh, we just happen to have a culture where, um, you know, senior management has to be pleased and nobody speaks up. In many places, it's policy not to speak up. In the most basic of terms, we have this with... um, this taboo against discussing your pay at a company. Oh, never discuss with your coworkers how much money you make. The only reason a rule like that would be in place would be if people were being taken advantage of, if, if, if the system was unfair. Any company where you are not encouraged to speak up has something going on. Yep. So, hey, Paradox knowingly protected someone who'd had to settle a lawsuit because they'd been abusive and joined Paradox and continued to be, that's no good. That's real bad. Fucking hell. I did save a positive story for last, because it's nice to have something vaguely positive to end these shows on. So it's nice, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Nice treat. 
So you know how uh, a couple of weeks ago we talked about uh, the studio behind Bug Snacks, um, Octodad, moving to a four-day work week? And we were like, yep, that's good. Maybe some AAA companies should do the same, get some nice promotion for themselves. One of them did. IDOS Montreal, the team working on that Guardians of the Galaxy game at the moment, has switched to a four-day work week for all staff and given all staff the option to either remote work permanently or work in the office permanently or do a bit of both, whatever works for them. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Hooray for better work-life balance for people making games. No, and 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 it's particularly where that company is located uh, in Montreal. There is an incredibly hot competitive market for game development talent, and when a major employer in one of those major areas makes a move like this to attract talent, the others are more likely to compete. And so there could be a domino effect from this that leads to perhaps some better working conditions in Montreal. And and if we're lucky, maybe even outside of Montreal. The hope for it being outside Montreal, I think, sits on the fact that one of the things they've done is they are now open to staff working full time remotely. And that could potentially mean someone in another city goes, I could work for someone in my city. Or I could remote work for IDOS Montreal, who were offering me a four-day work week. And that might help elsewhere, I don't know. But however we got here, I'm glad that at least one studio's done this, and I hope more follow suit. I feel like the wind is starting to change on this, and that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, especially right now with all of this talk of, you know, abuse in the industry and and where it being becoming undeniable just how... um, dangerous it can be to work in the game industry uh it's nice to see some companies at least wanting to oh certainly it makes sense that we see some companies wanting to make sure that they're known to be a place where you can work so that they have people work there Uh, so a big visual display of treating your workforce well i mean it makes business sense as well as anything else yeah. And and it's nice when business sense also coincides with humanity. I hope this works out well and I hope it gets adopted more. Always happy to see this as news. I think that's everything we've got for today. I think that's our whole list. Mm. Awesome. December 13th, by the way, I just found out, is Rise's anniversary show. Um, so December 13th is when I will defeat Brandon Kay in an I Quit match and and win control of Rise. So, but that's me. That's, yeah. that's, that's my shit. What about yours, Laura? Oh, hey, you should all go check out Who Hunts the Whale. It's a novel. I'm writing it with my wife. It's about video game companies that are entirely fictional, but maybe treat their employees poorly and uh, force a bunch of microtransactions into their games and maybe what we can do about that, but entirely fictional. It's called Who Hunts the Whale. You can go order a copy on Unbound. Uh, There's a bunch of different backer rewards if you're interested in those. Go search Who Hunts the Whale on Unbound. Other than that, Laura K. Buzz everywhere. I've got other books, Gender Euphoria, Uncomfortable Labels, Things I Learned from Mario's Butt. I've got other podcasts, uh, Pixel Squirt, Queer Unpleasant Strangers, uh, Dice Funk, that's a Dungeons and Dragons one, 
Glad you used to be on that. I sure was. You could also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Conrad Zimmerman and on Twitch at twitch.tv slash that Conrad Zimmerman. Uh, you could buy anti-capitalist propaganda from me at pinfultruth.com or at thegymporium.com, which, by the way, your shirts are coming. Oh, God. Yeah. Oh, Lord, they coming. <laughs> and everything I do gets supported on Patreon at patreon.com slash fist shark. And you know who else has a Patreon? <gasps> James Stephanie Sterling. Oh, fuck. Who has muted their mic. Hi, everyone. <laughs> I'm James Stephanie Sterling, and I muted my mic. And you can support me at my mic muting way is at patreon.com slash jimquisition. You can also watch me stream sometimes when I remember to and when I am not too sad. Uh, that is at twitch.tv slash jimsterling. And also you can, as Conrad mentioned, go to a website called thegymporium.com where you can buy fine quality t-shirts and badges and pins and all sorts of stuff and uh, just to reiterate december 13th i will be at rise uh doing oh wait no it's december 11th oh for fuck's sake steph right <sighs> november 13th will be the contract signing between myself and brandon k december 11th will be the i quit match for full control of the company and that's it that's ages away. Before then, there will be many podquisitions, including the one next week, which we'll see you at after thanking you for listening to this one. Thank you for listening to this one, and I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. I said I'll. That's egotistical. We'll see you next time. That includes me, though. Bye. 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 Bye.